Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're taking a break from our verse-by-verse study in John, and we're going to do this one message here. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Now, the title of the message is called Christ Honoring Fellowship. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness, or some versions say lawlessness? And what partnership does light have with darkness? And what agreement does Christ have with Baal? Or what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement does a temple of God have with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, it is... And I've said this for years. I've tried to convey this idea that this church, you don't come in here and say, well, I, I've stepped in this door or I'm a member of this church and I, I drop all my responsibility. And the pastor is the one that spoon feeds us. And we do nothing in reference to edification or aiding or service. I've always taught that the whole body of Christ is to, Scripture says, to edify one another, to build one another up. Of course, it's the pastor, elder, bishop, or whatever word you want to use. It's his responsibility to lead and to guide and shepherd the flock. But everyone has a responsibility to be involved and to serve one another. That's what the word ministry means, to serve. So if you, you hear people talk about going into the ministry like it's something glamorous, and they take this idea out of it of service, that's all it is. You're a servant. There's not really, as far as the world's concerned, there's nothing really glamorous about that. And the only thing that's attached to it that people might be attracted to is some churches pay out a lot of money for these professional servants. But that's not the idea what the scripture gives here. It's, It's everybody is a servant, and the one that is in charge of the local body leads all these in the ministry. But as the saints of God, one with another, serve one another in the body of Christ, in doing so, the focus must be to honor Christ. That is the focus, to honor Christ. So our priorities should reflect that focus, honoring Christ. Let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's not say if our priority is to serve, we will honor Christ. It should be if our priority is to honor Christ, we will serve. might not seem like much when you switch them around, but it makes all the difference in the world. It has to do with motive. It has to do with what energizes us to do what we do. The scripture says that as we do things toward one another or for one another, we are to do them as unto the Lord. One verse sticks out. It talks about in Ephesians. I can't remember exactly what chapter, but it talks about the whole church in Submitting themselves one to another. And then the next verse talks about wives submitting themselves 
unto the husbands as unto the Lord. So all the things that we do, whether it be our relationships in our family, relationships at work, relationships with our boss, relationships with any authority figure, as much as it in our nature is to rebel against especially bad authority. I mean, I can't hardly stop that. As far as exposing abuse of authority, I mean, I can't hardly shut up about it. There's a certain bowing to authority because God has set up authority structure. And we are, of course, to know what that balance is, that we should obey God rather than men. We should not obey men when it comes to things that violates the scripture, of course. But as God's sheep, whether they be brand new believers or brand new to the fold, the local fold, this church, as they come into this fold, they all have needs. You know, as far as this group here, it may have been Andy, which is maybe the newest among us as far as attending this local place, or perhaps Eric, maybe pretty close in time. But Andy, I know probably when you came here, you, you probably driving here, you probably maybe had some butterflies in your stomach. You think, what's this going to be like? I know we talked on the phone, which probably helped. But some people that show up here, if you can imagine going back in your mind of like your first day at school, especially if you go to a school you've never been to, which I've never done that. I've always gone to the same school. But I can imagine going to a new school first day. It's got to be unnerving on your belly or a new job. It's got to be, in your mind, very stressful. So coming into a church, a new church, or investigating a church, we as God's people should be sensitive to this idea. And it's the most important thing in the world is our spiritual health. So as we deal with People coming into the church, our priorities should be more focused on that. This church body, as people come in, we should be warm and welcoming and eager to serve. But what I'm getting at is people have needs. They need love. They need fellowship. They need learning. They need protection. They need to exercise their gifts. Everyone has a spiritual gift. Some don't even know yet what their gifts are. But those need to be brought out and exercised, not stifled. And there's all kind of other things that in the church body, things that take place that these sheep are involved with, especially when they're new. And as these sheep grow and they learn and they mature, they need discernment or understanding in recognizing the difference between truth and error. This is so, so very important. And we know it's, it's obvious that subtle error is harder to see than blatant error. We've been talking about this recently, the subtlety. There are all kind of examples in the New Testament about doctrinal error and heresy that crept into the church. Most of the New Testament books are about that. And it creeps in, by the way. It creeps in. It just doesn't all of a sudden somebody walk in the door announcing, hey, I'm a heretic. Here's what I'm going to lie to you about today. It's not like that. It slips in subtly. It creeps in. These people are creepers. So eventually, and the sooner the better, the believer should know the difference between what a primary issue is and what a secondary issue is. Basically, a primary issue, those issues are connected to the person of God, to the gospel, and to salvation. These are primary issues. In other words, if you get these wrong, it's not just heresy, it's damnable heresy. So that is a primary issue. So that is kind of what we're concerned about today and we're going to be talking about. These things that are primary issues, 
are how we determine by the gospel who we are supposed to fellowship with. And that's the focus of our message today. That's what we're talking about, Christ honoring fellowship. So this is obviously important because of our text. Look at the first line there, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, unequally yoked together, that phrase, means to yoke up differently, to associate discordantly, to yoke up differently or to associate discordantly. One of the root words, there's two root words go with that. One is just like almost the same thing I just read, but the other one is it means to join, especially by a yoke, a coupling, and it can also mean a beam of balance as connecting scales, like a pair of balances. Now, we're probably most familiar with seeing this oxen yoke set up. You could probably go to, I'd say Cracker Barrel. It's probably on the wall at Cracker Barrel. You could go to an antique store and see it's a yoke. It's a connecting, perhaps like a blown up pair of handcuffs, the way I envision it, where you couple two things together and the farmers use this to put two oxen together connect them together and they would plow together keep them in line and of course the idea is here you don't put a real weak one and a big old gigantic strong one and, and the strong one's pulling is dragging the other one behind or one that's like tall and the other one's short it's just they would be unequally yoked and that's the example that paul gives under the inspiration of the holy spirit here concerning us and who we are to fellowship with. Now notice this with unbelievers part. So right away we're talking about spiritual fellowship. We're getting into spiritual fellowship. Us investing in these people as a brother and sister in Christ, identifying in the Christ that they identify with, identifying with the same gospel they identify with, Identifying with the same Father. We, we say we are in the same family of God that you are in. So that is what is implied by saying, I'm in spiritual fellowship with you. And the warning is, don't be in spiritual fellowship with unbelievers. Don't be unequal. That's being unequally yoked. Now, I've seen over the years, especially when I was real young, um, churches take this text and abuse it. A lot of times they would just, they would only isolate this to marriage. I've seen this forever. And they would talk about not just unbelievers, but they would pervert and say that this is a focus of age, culture, and race. They would say if a white person would marry a Chinese person or a Arabic person would marry a black person, mixing races, they would say that's unequally up. Well, that's not what this is talking about. There's actually nothing in the scripture that talks about that. But this is specifically talking about with unbelievers. We've got to keep that in mind. It's talking about spiritual fellowship. Spiritual fellowship. That is the focus. That is the key. And we know this is a, a very controversial issue because we start to come out and as we define things and as we make distinctions, we bring out areas that are uncomfortable to a lot of people and sometimes outright denied when it comes to making a discerning judgment about what this means and following this through and being consistent in our life about not being in fellowship with unbelievers. 
I would say the vast majority of times, and I'm just speaking from personal conversations and in social media, 90% of the time it's outright denied. You cannot make that judgment, they say. Well, if you can't make that judgment, we can't obey this text at all. It's obvious in that determining who is an unbeliever is critical in not being unequally yoked with them. That's easy, isn't it? So we need some discernment or understanding needs to be used on how a judgment must be made. Let me say before I get any further, I meant to say this earlier, that this message is very much related to a message that I did years ago. It was actually, I think, the concluding message in the series of Galatians. And it was in uh, Galatians 6.14. And I think it is entitled on Sermon Audio, Judging by the Gospel. So those that are newer here or that are listening on Sermon Audio, you can kind of like compare that message to this message. I think there's even more detail in the other message. So probably some overlap in the two. But how do we do that biblically and honor Christ in this area of fellowship? Now, we've clearly warned about, in the Word of God, about the wrong way to judge. Romans 2, the wrong way, how not to judge whether one is an unbeliever or a believer, whether one is saved or lost. Again, let me just say, most people, most say you can't do that. You can't even judge saved and lost. It's been a confused issue, and, and we haven't confused it. Other people have confused it, and they've suppressed it, and there are reasons for that. I think there are conspiratorial reasons for people suppressing that idea. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, everyone who judges. For in that in which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge do the same things. Now, right away, I want us to see, and I want to say about this, this is talking about, just to let you know up front, clue you in on, it's talking about judging by the law. This whole chapter is talking about judging by the law. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to read through verse 3. Verse 2, but know that the judgment of God is according to truth, on those who practice such things. And, O oh man, the one judging those who do such things and practice them, do you think this, that you shall escape the judgment of God? In other words, what he's saying is, look, whoever you judge about breaking the law, you too are a lawbreaker. You, when you judge by the law, since you're a lawbreaker, you're automatically condemning yourself. This is a system that is self-condemning. I don't care if it's you judge this person by a law that you think you're keeping. There's another law that you're not keeping. You're not keeping the one you're blaming him for, by the way. But any law that you point to and judge a person lost or saved by, you've condemned yourself because you've just the standard of salvation by law keeping of man. We know Christ kept the law. So what does that do? Um, what I'm trying to do here today is I've thought of this text and I thought of several different things that we had not yet talked about, several different angles and focuses that we need to think about concepts that come. we're going to come at it from a different way. Priority, honoring Christ. That's priority here. That's what we need to think about, honoring Christ. This is not just some theological exercise that we can stimulate our spiritual brains, even though that's good to do. It's fun. 
It helps us grow. This is a Christ-honoring method that must be guided by those rules. This method of judging saved and lost is a method that dishonors Christ because he is the only law keeper. We start to judge by the law. What we're doing is starting to say, we're implying, we're going down the road of saying, I think we can keep the law and be saved. Therefore, what goes along with that? What's next? We have to judge that way. That's the next step. You can't just say a person is saved by the law and then come over here and not judge by the law. You know, religions try to do that, by the way, so they can have their cake and eat it too. You've got to be consistent. Those things have to be together. If you say that you're saved by the law, you must judge by the law. You can't divorce those. What it does, it teaches a works righteousness type so-called salvation. And we know this is a false gospel. Let's bring into play an actual, literal example. The churches of Galatia. Remember, we went through that book years ago. We know what it was, was these these false brethren, as Paul called them, they crept in, crept in slowly by stealth. The scripture uses that language. They stealthily crept in. And they, they used this language and they brought this in slowly and they told these people that believed in sovereign grace that you got it. Let's go, let's go back to, let's deal with dietary laws. Let's keep some days and let's be circumcised. It's Christ is great. I mean, we need him, but you're not saved unless you do these other things. So it was a Christ plus parts of the law. Now, what they were doing, they were saying, I think we looked at this recently. We went to the book of Acts 15, and we talked about, remember we talked about Peter moving from one table to the other, and we talked about what that implied. We talked about the fear involved there, and we talked about some little bit about assurance of salvation. But here's the deal. In Galatia, we saw Paul expose that heresy over six chapters into detail, fine detail. And he was showing that what they were doing, they were trying to be justified by the deeds of the law. Now, what must follow that is judgment by the law. They had to have had. I've never heard anybody talk about that, ever. And I'm not a genius or anything, but it just came to me this week as I was looking at this text, that you would have to be consistent and bring judgment by the law in with salvation by the law. You have to keep those together. And I would be interested on what that looked like in those churches. And we know it causes hypocrisy. It causes finger pointing. And those things are ugly. Salvation by the law is ugly. And when it's worked out practically in the church, it's hateful. It's hateful. Because what you're doing is you're accusing one another and excusing yourself. That's what you do. That's what it goes on to say in Romans 2 when we were looking at it there. Self-righteousness is what it is. Self-righteousness is always hateful. It's an abomination to God. Now, if your doctrine of salvation or your judgment of saved and lost is by the law or by really any form of obedience, any con- really any conditionalism, an ongoing maintenance of conditions, then what is the focus? The focus becomes a monitoring of those. How you doing on keeping this? How you doing on your standard of, are you increasing in your holiness? 
how's your chart on holiness looking? Because if it's not spiking, there's you better you're we better be afraid. That's the idea. That's what's implied. Not implied. I mean, I heard that flat out by some preachers. So think about that, that monitoring, that, that coming into the church among God's people and walking on eggshells, trying to just, you start pretending you're somebody you're not. It just becomes everybody is proud. They're just, they're just liars. They're walking liars. The church should be, when we come into the assembly, we come with humility. We still need the physician because we're sick. We haven't arrived and got it all figured out how to stop sinning. So think about it. In churches that believe you can lose your salvation, they automatically think that way. They're under the law. They have to maintain salvation by the law. Otherwise, they will lose their salvation. That's what that means. Any other form of legalism or conditional salvation is the same way. Even the subtle form of conditioning final salvation on how you progressed in your sanctification. It's not subtle. I hope it's not subtle us anymore. And we, we, we busted those people. We talked about it for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. We should be able to identify that and see that and call it out for what it is. It's a grace plus works salvation. If final salvation is conditioned on how well you progressed in your sanctification, it still works salvation. Go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 and verse 1. Another verse on judging that kind of guides our minds and how to do it. Kind of need to speed up a little bit. Some of these verses, as you start to read them, they're like, boom. And, and you think, Scott, you're just contradicting yourself. But as you read through, it explains and opens up on it's not wrong to judge. It's it's how you judge. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged for whatever judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with whatever measure you measure out, it shall be measured to you again. Now, let me read another. You don't have to turn. There's just one verse. Matthew seven twenty four says, judge not according to appearance but judge righteous judgment as we bring these verses in throughout the whole word of god we need to bring them together and see them harmonizing consistently with one another one does not the bible does not contradict itself if it does we're in trouble true pure logic doesn't contradict itself and we know christ as the word of God is true, pure logic, the prophet of God, the word of God, the truth does not contradict. If there's an issue, it's in our minds and we need to work it out. The Bible's true. Let God be true and every man a liar. So whatever judgment we dish out, how we judge, we're going to be judged back. So, so we need to find a biblical way that is safe for us. So that we can exercise our responsibility of judging, saving and lost, so that we can make sure who we're fellowshipping with and do it in such a way that's biblical, Christ-honoring, and really is self-serving, that is safe for us. What is the Old Covenant? It's the ministry of death. It is the ministry of condemnation. We studied a few weeks back. So we're... We're under grace. So we're judging in such a way that has to do with grace. 
That doesn't mean that it's like, I don't care what you do. Do what you want. We just love Jesus. And you can bring in false doctrine. You can just like, it's whatever. Orgies, get drunk. Let's do it all in here. It doesn't matter. That is not, that's not the situation at all. That's not what that's saying. That is not grace. That's antinomianism. Listen to this, two verses, Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also appear righteous to men outwardly, but inside, you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. It's just pretty much saying you're self-righteous. Matthew 23, in my opinion, is the most scathing, Christ's most scathing, spitting out of condemnation against false religion, I believe, is the strongest in Matthew 23. He called names. He called people out and called them names. <laughs> and he had the authority because, of course, he's the perfect sinless son of God. So this is dealing with, as we looked at a couple weeks back, remember we said, if you say you see, you're blind. Remember that? These are the ones that claim they could see. Christ said, no, you're blind. He said, I didn't come for those that are whole. I'm a physician. I came for those that are they're sick. These people didn't think they were sick. They appeared clean on the outside. You remember like Paul, before he was converted, he did all his things, all his outward things that he later counted as crap. That's the way these people were. Paul was a Pharisee. He's talking about Pharisees here. So self-righteous religion, conditional religion, law-keeping. This verse that we read a second ago that says in, in John 7 that I quoted to you, judge not according to appearance. The, that, was, that was King James. The modern King James says, judge not according to sight, appearance, sight. We just looked at that we don't live by sight, we live by faith. We looked at that recently. We talked about visible versus invisible, remember? I think it was last week and a hundred other times that we've talked about it. But I just wanted to add that as we judge by the gospel, this, again, is related to those invisible things that we talked about. It's not what a person wears. It's not a person is doing things with like lighting candles or, or doing some kind of up, down, cross, and ash on the head. All those religious things. You know, some people think that you preaching the gospel is every Sunday morning at whatever time you leave the house. 10.30, as you leave the house, you walk out, and it used to be, with your tie on, with that Bible under your arm. And that neighbor may be seeing you, and that's the only gospel they'll ever see. That's stupid, right? Who is the dude? St. Francis of Assisi. How do you say that? Yeah. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's what that crap is. Let them see Jesus in you, right? You've heard that, and... Some good preachers that I've listened to said they didn't see Jesus in Jesus. They killed him. So you can't. We're supposed to live as the scripture tells us to live. But that's not the gospel. 
That's a poor example of the gospel because we're sinners. I think we quoted uh, last week for we walk by faith, not by sight. So we shouldn't judge according to sight. For This is Galatians 2.26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So if we are to live and walk by faith, then we should be looking for faith as we're doing this task here. If we live by faith, we should be looking for faith to discern who is of the faith. Primarily faith of a person comes from their confession or their profession of the same gospel that you believe for determining a believer or a non-believer. Now the proper Christ-honoring and safe way to judge is by the gospel. And I add that word safe in. And I don't hesitate to add it. You should do this for your own spiritual safety is what I'm getting at when I say that. This way, judging by the gospel, that way, that judgment conditions all of salvation on Christ just like the gospel does. See, we have to keep judging just like the gospel is. Salvation is conditioned all of Christ. Therefore, judging is conditioned by Christ, not conditioned on the sinner. That goes back in the direction of judging by the law. We can't do that. We'll condemn ourselves, and that's not safe. So this way, we should want to be judged. I want to be judged that way. I want to be judged by the gospel. It says, remember back in uh, Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. And it says, if you judge a certain way, you'll be judged exactly by that way. This is the way right here. This is what I want. This is the safe way. Really, this is the way Christ commands us to judge and to judge one another by, which is the gospel of grace. Because the only other option is law or some other condition. And, of course, this is the safest way, especially when we know our weaknesses. We know we ourselves have weaknesses and we know each other's weaknesses. And I'm not just going to call it weaknesses. We know each other's sins. I know my sins. And all i got to talk to you is for about five minutes, I only have to tell you what my sins are. That's the way we are. We have weaknesses. And if we know ourselves and we're honest about ourselves, that carries over to, I know that other person is just like me. But I feel like I'm worse than they are. But at least I know they've got some similarities and weaknesses and sins. So judging by the gospel is the safe way. Now, our verse in our text goes on to say, there's a lot more we could say about that, but we're running out of time. The next part of our verse says, the second part of 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, For what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? Modern King James says lawlessness. So to answer the question, what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? Zero. None. Not just, well, maybe a little. See, this is the issue I've been running into on dealing with people in person and on social media when we talk about what the gospel is. And people want to take a a hybrid gospel, a mixed gospel, where they mix grace and works, grace and conditions. They want to talk about laws and doing things to finally, at, at final judgment, see how you performed. And if you've improved, then we'll see in the end how you're, how, if you really are a saint. Instead of the gospel, the gospel says, 
we start out as a full-fledged saint. Paul wrote those people in Corinthians. They were out of control. They were doing all kinds of stuff. They were getting drunk in church. What do you call them? Saints. Saints. Already. Done deal. Not going to be any more sanctified. Saints. Me and Andy were reading two verses in Hebrews that talk about sanctification is done. It's not by you anyway. It's done by God. It is monergistic. It is energized by God alone, not synergistic, not from within yourself. So it's not maybe a little. Fellowship has of righteousness with unrighteousness, maybe a little. No, zero. That's the answer to the question. Zero. The righteousness as in we are justified by the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account as compared to all other forms of righteousness. That's the rivalry right there. Christ's righteousness imputed for our justification versus any other way of righteousness. That's what's at stake. That's the competition. What fellowship do those two have one with another? I left the one. I counted it as dumb. It's satanic. But, you know, I challenge you to, perhaps on Facebook, talk that way about a false gospel. That it's not just, a, maybe, it's, maybe it's a different perspective. No, tell people, if you really believe it, that it's actually satanic. Ooh, that's strong words. That's what, I mean, the scripture talks about the spirit of Antichrist. It talks about another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. Paul said, if anybody preaches that, let them be damned. He didn't say it's an option. It's like going to Golden Corral. And I'll take a little of that. This is optional. There's no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness. What this does is it gets to what the offense of the cross is. The offense of the cross is Christ's righteousness compared to all other forms of righteousness. That's what the offense of the cross is. As soon as you make a distinction between a false righteousness with the only true righteousness of Christ, offense, offense, blank and lines, offense, offense, you're hated, you're persecuted. Christ promised it. It's going to happen. There's no fellowship between the two. It goes on to say, and what partnership does light have with darkness? Answer, zero. We've come out of darkness. Remember in the first couple chapters of John how it talks about how light shine in darkness and darkness comprehended that not? We're out of that. He's changed us from that mess. He's given us the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Next question, verse 15. What agreement does Christ have with Baal? which is a false idol. Or second question, what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? Pretty much rehearses the original question or the original statement to don't have fellowship with unbelievers. The answers to both of those questions, zero, zero. Notice the second question. What part does a believer have with an unbeliever? No part. Not a fraction, not a decimal, just a little part. No part. Period. So this time, notice this, the first part of that question in verse 15. Christ himself is brought in to comparison with idols. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the focus of our message. Christ honoring fellowship. Christ himself is here. Now we know throughout, especially throughout the Old Testament, God was mentioned like this, compared up against idols. 
I'm God, there's none else. There's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. They pray to a, to a God that cannot save. Talked about these idols where they had to be picked up, moved. They couldn't talk. They were deaf, dumb, and blind. So you're the God. You're moving them around because they can't move themselves. Remember the false idols where Elijah, the prophet speaking to prophets Baal, 400 prophets Baal. Remember the dude was cutting himself, praying, couldn't get anything done. And Elijah, his duty and responsibility was to mock false religion. See, what's your God asleep? Did you take a trip? Is he on the toilet? What's the deal? He can't get the job done. No part with, they, they don't mix. No compromise. See, this is no compromise is what we're saying. We cannot compromise on this issue. So this has to be done today. It's taught, there were different type of idols back then, all kinds of different idols. But we know all you have to do is imagine, image, imagine a false god in your mind. And you have created an idol. We were born natural idolaters, believing in false gods that just churned up our self-righteousness. So today this has to be done. And we need to associate what? Savior a person believes in their belief or unbelief. Who is your Savior? Do you identify with the Savior of the gospel? Do you identify with my Savior? Let's see biblically, not by where you go, what you do. What do you what do you say you believe? Example, examples, plural, some easy ones. If you look at a Jehovah's Witness. Dude, maybe that you work with or know or you're related to. Clean as a whistle outside. Does anything for you and everybody else around. Can't find anything wrong with them. And you call them a brother in Christ. You're saying you agree with their Christ. Now we know, for example, and this is an easy one to pick on. Jehovah's Witness believe that Christ is not God. So you're saying we have the same Christ. No fellowship. No compromise. Here's another one easy to pick on. If you go up to a Roman Catholic that believes in Catholic doctrine, and we know what that is, and you say, please pray for me, brother. Or you pat him on the back, you say, how you doing, brother? And you speak spiritual peace to their account in reference to you have the same father, you have the same Christ, you have the same gospel. That's what you're doing. You're implying we believe in the same gospel. Can't do it. As the scripture says, don't, that's unequally yoked. You cannot do that. You As we go along, someone maybe gets closer. You can find groups that are closer and closer and closer and closer to you. And as you mature and be skilled in learning what doctrine, what subtlety to look for, you become exercised in watching out for some of these enemies of the cross. Of course, you know, I use the phrase Armenian quite broadly. I do. And when I say that, I mean those that are using some form or another of conditions for salvation. Some type of a law a lower law, those are conditions. You have to do this if you don't do this. And it usually involves human-centered things, your will, 
And of course, Arminianism, that's only the half. The bigger problem is the shame and reproach of their view of the failed atonement of Christ. That's the biggest problem, is that Christ and the atonement he failed in. So you you shake a Arminian's hand and uh, you say, pray for me, or peace, brother. And what you're saying is, I believe in the exact same gospel that you do. Now, the gospel is the power of God and salvation, right? Unless you don't believe that, are there optional gospels? Or are you saying you don't have to believe the gospel? A person somehow miraculously is saved over here not believing the gospel? You say, brother, you're saying same gospel, same Christ, same father, same spirit. You're yoking yourself with that person spiritually. So this is very, very important. And when we're born again, the second we're born again, we just all said, boom, we don't have this. There's a certain essence and natural judgment that we have with what we know, but we don't, we're not matured in this. We become trained to where we can recognize these things faster and in more depth. It goes on to say in verse 16, and what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Of course, none. That's the answer. None. Zero. Remember that to confess Christ is to agree with, or in other words, say the same word about Christ, right? So the Christ that you confess or the gospel that you confess or the sin or type sinner that you are, that you confess that you are, would be yoking yourself with those same things doctrinally by that other person. Those things better match or you should not have any type of yoking with them. Now look at this. Notice this. The second part of uh, verse 16, it says, for you. It's talking about people. You're the temple of God. You yourself make up the temple of God. People. It's not talking about a building. You know, some people have that weird idea about the church as a building. It's ridiculous. You. So this brings it personal, which means you have a responsibility to know what's going on here in discerning what's being said. You're the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. So here there, there's no disconnect between God, the gospel, and the believer. There's no disconnect. It all carries through. They're all harmonious. There's no separating. But here, speaking of separating... The only disconnect should be a believer from unbeliever. But here's the separating. Here's the command. There's the exhortation here. Verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. This is a quote from Isaiah 52, verse 11. And there's a very strong emphasis here on repentance from dead works. A change of mind about what you used to be confident in, what you used to trust in, what you used to invest your faith in, is now changed. The word, actually in Isaiah, uh, the modern King James uses the word turn, which always has to do with repentance. 
turning of your mind, changing of your mind. And God gives that by grace, a change of mind. I always want to go to Philippians 3, where Paul had that change of mind. He used to count on these things, this list. God gave him a change of mind. He said, I can't count on it. I, I, I flushed that down the toilet. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness. So again, very strong emphasis on a change of mind in, in this, what I call evangelical repentance or gospel repentance, which has to do with repentance from self-righteousness, which is rarely preached today. Rarely. It's basically turning from self-righteousness to the Lord our righteousness, which is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. The majority of repentance preaching today, what is it? It's legalism. It's preaching about sin in such a way that it takes us back to our false religion of what our natural conscious conviction already told us without the spirit. And it's a life of fear and bondage. Instead of by grace looking at our immorality and by grace giving us a new motive for not sinning. A new motive for doing or not doing. And it's the motive of grace by faith out of love because Christ already did it. I've got no fear of hell. Therefore, I'm not going to not sin to stay out of hell. Christ already took care of that part. So it's a new mind in dealing with sin. So the text goes on and says, therefore, in other words, because of what's already been said, already been established, therefore come out from among them and be separated. Don't be yoked up with or in union with these people in spiritual fellowship. You don't have to turn there, but Second John says something like this. It says that if you do that, you are partaker of them with their evil deeds. It goes on and says, and touch not the unclean thing. The unclean thing. Very, very simple. It is any other way of salvation than that of which the gospel declares. I guarantee you there's some people in this county that are saying the unclean thing is heroin. The unclean thing is prostitution. Or pornography. That's, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a rival form of righteousness. Any other way, no matter how small or how great, and it's usually small, that is a competition with or in addition to the righteousness of Christ. That's the unclean thing. That is wicked. That is satanic. That is a stench in the nostrils of God. It is worse than the worst thing you can think of. In conclusion here, it says, and I've gone kind of long. I will, the third part of verse 17, and I will receive you and I will be your father and you shall be to me sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now remember, I already quoted Galatians 3.26. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we know faith is a gift. It's not conditional. I don't want us to look at the last verse and a half here and say, well, now it just went back altogether again. Paul just, he just canceled everything out by making it conditional. That's not what this is saying. Stick with me just a couple more minutes. And as Henry Mahan said, I'll make good on that.
Just hold on a minute. We need to see this is not a conditional summing up of this text. It refers to persevering in the gospel and not apostatizing. Apostatizing, which means leaving the faith or going back to a false religion. Several different ways we know this is what this is saying. Back to one of our hermeneutical or scriptural interpretation or rules. There's no contradictions in the Bible. We know salvation is unconditional. All the conditions of salvation are on Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. Salvation is conditional on Christ. We know this because salvation is by grace and not by works. We know this because faith and repentance are gifts of God, not offers. But they're gifts of God that are effectually worked in the elect. Follow me in two texts. We're not even going to come back to this text anymore. Go to two places. Hebrews 10, verse 38. We'll finish it out with just basically reading these two things. They're self-explanatory. Hebrews 10, verse 38. Last two verses of uh, that chapter. And now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, what, from faith and go to sight or works, stick with faith. If any man draw back from faith, in other words, you're going back into unbelief. If you draw back into faith, you're going back into unbelief. That's where you're going. That's the whole warning of Hebrews anyway. Don't go back in that old covenant, the administration of death, administration of condemnation. It says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him if, if it goes back. But we aren't those, the elect, believing the gospel. We're not of them that draw back into perdition. But we are them that believe to the saving of the soul. Final belief throughout your whole life. Believe in the gospel. No matter how bad you are. And in your flesh dwells no good thing. To the last day you breathe your last breath, in your flesh dwells no good thing. So you need that gospel just as much, that last breath, as you did the first breath when you came to Christ. When you were fleeing the wrath of God coming to Christ, you need it just as much as that last breath. And you believe it. It's by grace. You don't start to, okay, um, I heard I can't talk because I'm paralyzed. I heard them talking. They're going to pull the plug. I'm going to get my mind straight. God, I've done a pretty good job. and I feel pretty good about it. Got a few more minutes here. I know I've, I've done some stuff better than other people. I feel pretty good about it. Uh, it's dangerous. That's, that's condemnation. You're judging yourself by the law. You're condemning yourself. This is talking about believing the gospel. That last minute you're saying, I'm wicked and I'm glad I've got a Savior to save me from my wickedness. If it wasn't for him, I would be damned. Colossians 1, let's go there for the last verse. Colossians 1, I'm pulling a James Gugo type length message. And I want to be judged by the gospel here and ask for your forgiveness. I didn't want to make this a two-parter. Colossians chapter 1, I love this verse. I've been here several times. You all should have this memorized by now. Verse 21. Colossians 1.21, this proves our point that the last 
verse and a half of our text in 2 Corinthians 6 doesn't go back to conditionalism. It goes back to what same thing harmonizes with what this says. Verse 21, Colossians 1. And you who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean heroin, prostitutes. It's pretty much anything that is lawless, whether it be self-righteousness or any other sin. And we know self-righteousness is our worst problem. And if we don't think so, we are self-righteous. You see how deceiving that is? It said, alienated enemies from your minds by wicked works, but yet now he has reconciled. How did he do that? Verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death. So what did that do? His death. What did it do for his people on the cross? To present you holy, that means sanctified, by the way, unblameable. You can't be charged. You're in the state of the non-imputation of sin. You can never be charged with sin again. Because it was charged to Christ. And unreprovable in his sight. Those three things that his death does for you that secures salvation by the death of Christ. Semicolon sentence goes on if you continue in the faith. Don't miss that. If you continue in the faith. Not if you continue in that list of things Paul listed that he counted on. Or not if you look good like the Pharisees did outwardly, like Christ even said they did. Not if your sanctification progresses and you get holier and holier and sin less and less and less. Not if that, because that ain't going to happen. If you continue in the faith. The faith is the gospel. It says grounded and settled and be not moved from the hope, which is what? Confident expectation of the gospel. That's the faith. Those things are synonyms. But I had mentioned in times past that this is self-protecting. It circles back around and protects ourself because when we continue in the faith grounded and settled and, and we're not moved away from the hope of the gospel, it's talking about the stuff in verse 21 and 22 of how we're reconciled to God and how that we are holy, not by what we do, how that we're unblameable, not by what we do, and how that we're irreprovable in his sight. Who in their right spiritual mind <laughs> would walk away from that? This is the only good news. Only. Anything short of this is a damnable heresy. It's a lie. It's an abomination. It's wickedness. It's the worst. Okay, Scott, you, are you telling me this is worse than baby rape? Yes, it is. This is worse than baby rape. That's where people go. I've been on social media. You're talking about... You're either talking about the gospel or you're talking about absolute predestination. Two things come up, which are the same. Both categories. Baby rape. You seen it? It's ridiculous. You know what that shows? They don't believe this. What do you think Christ went through? The most unjust thing as far as in man's hands. 
the most unjust thing that ever happened to a person who was innocent, the only person that was innocent. He got screwed by man. And then, of course, in God's hands, it was the most just thing that ever happened. Right? Those things are easy to reconcile. You can see them in the gospel. So think about those things. I know I laid a bunch of stuff out real quick. And that other message, judging by the gospel out of Galatians 6.14, goes with this message. But it's all about honoring Christ. I'm not just saying that. I know that's the case. If we honor Christ, we harmonize with these truths that we talked about. May God give us wisdom in this area. Any questions, comments?